all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But some people are just better at not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. I don't have a guest for you this week because I'm going to be continuing on the discussion about uh, human motivation and behavior as viewed through the lens of one uh, psychological theory, which is called transactional analysis. I've done two other episodes on this concept uh, previously that build up to this one. So if you haven't heard them yet, they're episode 44. Two and episode 44. So if you want to go back and listen to those ones before you come back to this one, it may make a little bit more sense. I do try to uh, recap the theory pretty quickly at the start though. So if, uh, you know, hopefully it makes sense to you. And if it doesn't, go back and listen to those other ones and then come back. Um, before I get into the podcast, I just wanted to quickly say thank you to everybody who participated in my very silly uh, fucking social media nonsense. Um, it was we've just passed the one year birthday for this podcast. So I did a little exciting challenge to, for people to share my videos and stuff so that more people can see the podcast and hopefully more people can hear the podcast. And for my gratitude for you guys helping me advertise myself, (laughs) um, I did a giveaway and I announced that, Oh, who's this? Somebody with a fucking motorcycle. Wait there. I'm going to wait till it goes away and then I'm going to come back to you. That person, I don't know, I, I don't, maybe it isn't a motorcycle. I think it was like an old car that sounded loud. That person was, came into my driveway before um, and was just sitting there like revving the engine. <laughs> it was like a like primate mating ritual or something. They were just like waiting for someone to come out inside and be like, ooh, ooh, that's cool. I don't know, probably something to do with what they needed to do to preserve the engine. Oh, fucking who knows. I don't know anything about cars. Either way. Uh, sorry for the interruption. He's gone now or she's gone now. That was ra- uh, racist. That was sexist of me, wasn't it? I just assumed that it was a man sitting in the car revving his engine trying to get a lady to come out and talk to him. But could have been a lady looking for a man or a gender non-binary looking for another gender non-binary. That was a fucking tangent. Anyway, uh, what the fuck was I even talking about? I don't remember. Uh, Oh, yeah, giving away stuff. I love, obviously, making this podcast, but it does mean more to me that people actually get something out of it and are listening to it. It's not just a matter of me sort of like psychically masturbating in my shed, which I do this probably anyway, but it does feel a lot better when I know that people are actually listening and engaging and interested in it. So uh, I appreciate that, guys. And if I still am, uh, got a special or an offer on right now, if you decide that you want to be a patron of the podcast until the end of March, I'll be giving a free drawing to anyone that signs up to be a patron. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Patreon is like a, I guess it's kind of like a crowdfunding website, but it's just ongoing, similar to Kickstarter or GoFundMe. And what it is, is that you can sign up to be a patron of the podcast. You can sign up to any level, whatever you want. You can just give a little donation at the time, or you can um, sign up for like a monthly five bucks a month or whatever to support the podcast. And 
what it does is essentially helps me produce the podcast without having to get external advertisers or some shit that you guys don't care about. And it, the people who are actually receiving the benefit of the content get to support the content that I make. So, um, if you want to do that, that's just patreon.com slash Lorna Bremner. And all the links to that are on my website. If you can't afford that or that's not your style, no dramas. Um, just sharing the podcast, telling your friends about it, liking it on iTunes, whatever, subscribing, all of that shit helps me. So thanks heaps for that. Now, enough of that. Let's talk about motivation. Uh, I do have a little bit of a duty of care now to, well, see, okay. A friend of mine pointed this out to me and, uh, he's a hundred percent right. I, in me, proselytizing in my shed about books I've read or ideas that are um, rolling around in my head, it's probably important that I give you both sides of the coin so that you can make up your own decision. And uh, I didn't do that for the first two two episodes of TA. Bearing in mind, when I make these podcasts, I'm not saying like, hey, this is the way the world is. I'm just uh, taking an idea that's probably otherwise inaccessible to you or something that you had not maybe heard of or considered, and I'm trying to break it down for you in a funny, interesting, and useful way to help you kind of address your own self-reflection and your own motivation and your own goals. So when I do these podcasts, I'm not saying that this is the end-all, be-all salvation for you. It's just like an idea to consider. But I am aware that uh, just by giving one side of the coin, uh, it doesn't really paint the whole picture. So I haven't pointed out any of the criticisms as yet of transactional analysis. And so I'm going to do that a little bit now. Um, You know, this theory was developed in the 50s. And and this book that I'm reading, uh, or the book that I'm talking about in this whole podcast is called Games People Play. It was written and published in 64. So, you know, this is, uh, psychology has come a long way since then. (laughs) Um, And it was developed by a guy who had three failed marriages. I mean, this is a uh, social, he's a psychiatrist that specialized in human relationships and behavior, and he had three failed marriages. (laughs) So he probably, you know. He wasn't a perfect guy. Um, he also had four massive heart attacks, and one of them killed him at the end. So, you know. Um, but anyways, the criticisms of the, the transactional analysis theory, I haven't seen much about the criticisms of the theory. I've seen more criticisms about the therapy and the models of therapy that came out of it. So one of them is that it hasn't really been rigorously tested scientifically um, because a lot of the basis of transactional analysis therapy is in the assumption that a person is displaying a certain predictable pattern of behavior, which means that uh, the therapist is only good at TA if they can name and label the behavior that the person's doing. And by doing that, you're, pro- you're making assumptions about why the person's doing what they're doing, when they're doing it, and you have... A- a real risk of not paying attention to the nuance of their individual behavior, if that makes sense. Like, so if you're trying to constantly label something, you tend to pigeonhole people into certain categories and ideas. Uh, and and Eric Burns, the the person who developed this, his idea was that he wanted to create a kind of more structured framework for counseling and for therapeutic practices because there didn't seem to be much framework at the time, because he had a background in. 
a little bit uh, background in neuroscience and in obviously medicine, being a psychiatrist, he went through medical school. So he wanted to come up with something that was a bit more kind of tangible framework foundation for uh, psychoanalysis. Uh, so in doing that, sometimes when you are adhering to a framework, you can tend to take phenomena from the outside world and bend it to fit your framework rather than try and discover what the phenomena is in and of itself. So that's pretty important to know. And then um, it has also, um, my friend pointed this out to me, but it had been used to justify some pretty popular but totally unscientific and wacky treatment methods. Um, the one that he found was that therapists were using this model to regress patients back to their childhood and then like spanking them <laughs> to try and get rid of like toxic behavior patterns that they had um, were displaying as an adult. So, um, you know, who knows? That's pretty fucking wacky. But in saying that, just because some people took a theory and then developed a wacky protocol doesn't mean that the theory itself is wrong. In my opinion, the theory of transactional analysis is pretty profound and pretty accessible to the everyday modern person. And it's a great way of uh, giving yourself a bit of framework to s reflect on your own behavior. But um, if that's true, then yeah, some of the methods of TA therapy <laughs> could be kind of fucked. Oh, and in saying that too, like almost all theories, psychological, spiritual, fucking atomic theory, we all know that that one went pretty horribly wrong. doesn't mean atomic theory is bad because we made an atomic bomb and dropped it on some people. Like that was fucked. But atomic theory itself isn't necessarily wrong because of that. And one of them, like one of the classic examples, like Buddhism, most people think that Buddhism's pretty peaceful religion and not a lot goes wrong with it. But it's got a colored past too. I mean, there's, there's this guy, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, was a spiritual teacher in the 70s uh, who was also like a really bad alcoholic and a womanizer. And he spent most of his time introducing women to the bliss of God through the fucking hole in the tip of his penis. <laughs> but just because he's a fucking maniac, it doesn't mean that all of the ideas in Buddhism are wrong, you know? I don't know. I think that people, when they get into positions, it, you come up with an idea and you start to like get a following where people are interested in what you have to say. I don't know. People get tainted by power or they get the ideas get mangled and fucked up when you're inside a little echo chamber of your own believe you believes. Yeah, shit can get wacky for sure. And so I'm grateful for my friend pointing out to me that I've done two podcasts now uh, breaking this idea down and have not yet even considered like how the actual psychological world views this. <laughs> I get really excited about it, I, an idea, and I, I, I do it definitely realize that I have a duty of care to give you all of the, um, you know, all sides of the coin. Another criticism, too, uh, and the last one that I'm going to talk about is that uh, TA comes from the point of view that everything you do comes from your experiences as a child, and it has very little to do with your biology, if at all. Um, so anything, including, um, the two cases that Wikipedia talks about is their ideas on homosexuality and autism, that they can be unprogrammed. Um, and obviously knowing what we know now about the brain is that structural changes in the brain are going to have a significant impact on your behavior. And those structural changes can be caused either by genetics or experiences. And to deny either aspect of that is just obviously silly. So please just take from this whatever you will. And if you obviously are in need of some help with your mental health, 
please go see a professional. Don't just rely on the ramblings of someone who reads books and then talks to herself about them for hours in a shed on the internet. I, I know that you're not doing that. I'm not, I'm certain that no one's out there just sitting there like taking fucking notes from me and solving their problems and becoming a therapist. Like I know that you guys know this, but it's worth saying, I guess. Um, so anyways, transactional analysis is this method. It's a theory and a method of studying interactions between people in order to better understand our behavior. And it was developed by the psychiatrist Eric Byrne in the 50s. Um, everything that I'm talking about, it comes out of this book called Games People Play that he wrote uh, in the 60s. So um, transactional analysis basically says that uh, every interaction between people is called a transaction. Because during that interaction, we exchange a, a type of sort of social currency that he calls a stroke, uh, as in like petting a cat. The purpose of the transaction is to give and receive these strokes in order to get recognition that you exist. The foundation for this idea um, actually comes from one of his colleagues. He was pretty interested in neuroscience, and they were discovering at the time that there is a pretty significant impact on the development of the brain if a person doesn't receive the proper nurturing that they need as an infant. They did some animal experiments um, about this, pretty fucking horrific, just separating they, they did it with these monkeys. They're called rhesus, rhesus macaque monkeys. And they gave them all different kind of levels of either nurturing or no nurturing as infants separated them from their mothers and then had different kind of surrogate mothers or like one was a wire frame that the, the monkey had to cuddle up to when it was scared. And the other one was like a, a terry cloth covered frame. Um, it, it was, oh, it's fucking gross to think about, but... So when the monkeys were scared, they'd have different behavioral patterns compared to the monkeys that were raised normally. And a lot of the monkeys that were raised in isolation, when they got put back in groups with other people, they were or other monkeys, they were so distressed that they uh, didn't eat and starved themselves to death. So it's pretty. It was pretty fucking crazy. They I talked about this a little bit too in the um, drug addiction podcast, where they did some experiments with rats, uh, mice where they separated them from their mother after birth. And no, the normal process for a rat is to like lick and groom the babies for quite a long time after they're born. And uh, so they wanted to know what would happen if the baby didn't get licked or groomed after it was born. And they found out that the those mice had significant behavioral issues and socialization issues as they got older. And then they ended up wanting to understand what was happening inside the brain. And they cut their brains open and found out that there was some pretty severe developmental issues. So it's a pretty interesting concept that whatever can go on in your early development uh, will actually have a physical impact on the way your brain develops. Um, and that concept is called neuroplasticity. We've talked about it a little bit before, but it's the idea that your brain is kind of like constantly changing and rewiring itself as it develops. Um, so in psychology, they call this concept stimulus hunger, which is uh, in the same way that a baby would get hungry for food. Uh, a baby, if it isn't being touched at all, becomes hungry for physical affection and recognition. And then as we get older and uh, the baby's less dependent on its mother, the opportunities for physical affection become less. And so then the baby learns to figure out how to get stimulation in other non-physical ways and more complex ways. So now the baby learns to be satisfied with getting a verbal good job 
rather than a physical pat on the back. And when we don't get that, uh, this is what becomes uh, what they call recognition hunger or stroke hunger. And so in the same way that we need to be physically stroked in order to be a normally developed human being, we also need to be recognized by the people around us. Because we have these more complex ways of getting this recognition, when it doesn't come to us, we start to seek it out more. We become hungry for it, and then we look for other ways of getting it. Um, so a stroke is simply put a unit of recognition that someone exists, and it can be physical or not, and it also can be positive or negative. Um, the simplest type of a positive stroke would be like nodding at a stranger as you pass them on the street and they nod at you back. And then the negative version of the same thing would be that you nod at your neighbor and then they frown at you and then look away. Uh, this is still a transaction because you've both exchanged strokes, but it's just not the one you were looking for. One of you gave a positive stroke and the other one gave you a negative stroke back. Um, because they frowned, they did acknowledge that you exist, which is the point of the transaction, but they just did it in a shitty way. Um, and interestingly, uh, like if they didn't acknowledge you at all, even if they didn't frown and they just did nothing and stared right through you, that would be actually more psychologically damaging and leave you more hungry for more recognition going forward. Um, and the reason for that is obviously because the point of the transaction is to get recognized. And so when you don't get recognized at all, you're not satisfied, and you start getting a bit hungry. But the truth is we're not really satisfied with like a wave and a nod, are we? What happens next? What happens after that? What do we do with ourselves when we're fucking waiting in line at the post office and you've nodded at all the people that have looked at you, and we've already established that everyone exists, and in fact you're probably upset that they exist because they're in the way of you getting your parcel delivered. Does anyone even go to a post office anymore? Probably. Um, but anyways, uh, this period of time now is what we call time structuring. And this is how we as a collective pass the time together. So an example of time structuring is like your job when you go to work. That is an example. It's a pretty complex example of time structuring. It's predictable. It's routine. There are a bunch of social transactions that go on inside it. And those transactions serve the dual purpose of stroking you and your colleagues, but it also contributes to the overall activity of the company and what you're doing. Um, your work Christmas party also is a time structuring activity, but uh, the funny switch happens here is like now you're used to interacting with all those people on this like activity-based level where you have something else to do, you're task-oriented, you're working together towards another goal, and then all of a sudden you go to a work party and all the people that you know really well that you see every day are suddenly like stiff strangers just staring at the walls trying to think of something to say, <laughs> drinking excessively until, of course, like you get drunk enough to accidentally suck somebody off in the bathroom <laughs> and regret it for days later. This, the staring at the walls before you went to the bathroom to blow John from fucking marketing, is what TA calls structure hunger, which is essentially boredom. Like, what the fuck do we do with ourselves now? And this is a funny balance to me. I feel like the entire experience of living is, is just us drifting along the invisible pull of time, constantly bouncing between the things that we know and the things that we don't. And like being mad about either. <laughs> it's, 
there's the future that we don't understand, the past that we think we do understand, the new, the old. We like we'll constantly seek a new experience to feel alive. And then once we've got that experience, we're like, yeah, fuck, that felt good. I'm going to do that again. And then, fuck, I want to do that again because I want to get that feeling quicker. And I want to learn how to do it better and faster. And then eventually, by doing it all the time, that makes the feeling familiar and predictable, which makes it boring. And then that boredom kicks us into like <laughs> seeking gratification in another direction. So the human condition, and I don't know, maybe possibly life in general, is like just this balancing act of structuring our time in the most satisfying way possible so that we can stave off the existential hunger, uh, which I guess essentially, if you're honest about it, it's probably just what death is. You know what I mean? Like this feeling of ultimate boredom and nothingness is death. It's a bit dark, isn't it? Um, but you know, as far as TA is concerned, uh, if you get too wrapped up in any of that shit and you get hungry in any one of those environments, whether it's through, uh, needing recognition from others or needing physical affection from others or being so bored that you become apathetic and constantly muse on the concept of death, uh, it's going to lead to problems within the others. And this is where you end up with psychological issues, antisocial behavior, et cetera. So, uh, the concept of stimulus hunger is that we're desperate for stimulation. We want to be felt and touched and loved. And usually what happens when we're hungry, we become creepy, overly affectionate or kind of needy. And that naturally pushes other people away. So then the problem compounds and it gets worse and worse. Recognition hunger is the second one. And that's, uh, we, if we become desperate for recognition, we'll start trying to impress people like, uh, taking some Snapchat selfies on the internet and quoting um, a Buddhist philosopher that raped a bunch of women <laughs> unknowingly. No, he knowingly raped the women, but we're unknowingly quoting his ideas and being like, see, everything's beautiful. Um, or, you know, making up lies about what you've done in the past or whatever, or just living in the past. So all this shit is naturally unsatisfying you're looking for attention and you know you're looking for attention. You know that it's a ploy to get more attention. So it doesn't feel good. Once the likes, the likes will come in. Oh, you look so beautiful with that filter on. And you're like, yeah, I know. That's because it's not my face. <laughs> and so then the likes come in, but it makes you feel like shit. So you try more and do it again and do it again. And it becomes this addictive cycle. Uh, and you never end up getting closer to yourself because you're denying yourself or anyone else because nobody can actually see you. It's a protection mechanism. And then lastly, you've got structure hunger, which is having to deal with unstructured time, like staring at the walls with our work colleagues, um, fucking standing in line at the post office, having meaninglessness, not knowing what the fuck to do with yourself. Like this kind of feeling drives us to do uns like shameful or socially destructive things. We will literally almost do anything in order to avoid the horror of general boredom and meaninglessness. And... When those things become socially destructive, isolating, or shameful, we become hungry for stimulation and recognition, and the fucking whole cycle repeats itself. So each one lends to the others. Um, so today, I wanted to talk about the way that we tend to develop these types of hunger inside the transactions and some more complicated versions of transactions, um, how that can impact our motivations and behaviors and our interactions with others, and then at the very end, if I can, I'm not a psychologist, obviously, but um, some of the ideas 
within TA and the general world at large on how to stop doing that to help us keep us a little bit more psychologically nourished. And like I said, I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a person who reads books and then needs to structure her time in such a way to get like heaps of recognition from you guys in order to silence the ache of like a pretty lonely and confusing child. <laughs> I hunted boiled eggs for Easter in my house for many years. Boiled eggs. What kind of kid is motivated enough to run around the house finding boiled f- eggs? No wonder I'm a lunatic. Anyway, so I guess we, can, we basically can kind of establish that uh, according to this theory, the foundational motivation behind all social interaction is that we want to get recognition. And it's not recognition that we're special. Um, it's just recognition that we exist. That's a pretty important distinction to make. And I've talked about this before in previous podcasts. It's recognition that we're special is a form of recognition hunger. Just recognizing that we exist is a natural part of the human condition. Um, so according to psychologists, uh, we tend to structure our time in three ways and they call this programming. It's not like uh, your mind control programming that conspiracy theorists are always talking about. This is um, a general structure of humans being in the world that's, world that's sort of universal to our species. The content of the programming obviously changes across cultures, but the general structure and framework for this type of programming exists um, everywhere. And they are uh, material programming, which is what happens, uh, task-oriented or activity-based stuff that happens out in the world, your relationship to the world around you. So that would be like you and a friend baking a cake together, that you are mutually uh, working towards a task that you're trying to accomplish, and there are social interactions that happen inside that task. Uh, Your job is also like another example of a more complex version of that. Um, Then you have your social programming, which is like your culture's accepted norms and manners. And um, they call these rituals and pastimes, and they're like small talk. It's the shit that you are told to do by your parents in order to be like a normal functioning human in a social setting. And then Underneath that is what they call individual programming, and this is the main focus of the topic of the podcast today, which is your nuanced individual personality components that make you who you are. This kind of programming appears after you've already gotten through the socially programmed small talk, and then you actually have to start being someone yourself. You know, like you're not necessarily an anybody when you're nodding at someone in the Uh, post office line. But as soon as you're stuck there for two hours and you have to start talking to each other, that's when your individual programming starts to come out. Um, And this is where, uh, according to TA, we start to play games. And uh, an example I used, I was talking to my friend about this on his podcast a few days ago. And uh, the example that I used in that one is the very typical girlfriend, boyfriend scenario where like you meet someone and you're like, I don't play games. (laughs) And the way that we think of games is like, oh, it's this manipulative, weird behavior that you're trying to do to get in in another objective. And the funny thing is, is like, that is exactly what a game is, but we all do them constantly. We all play games constantly. That just saying, I don't play games is a form of a game that you're playing. You're trying to call them out on, you're trying to challenge them to prove how much they're not playing games with how much you're not playing games. It's a game in itself. Uh, they're saying that like 
of the majority of all social experience is taken up in games. And they're not all negative. They are a means of us helping our, us helping each other mutually structure our time. So some games can be really fun to play and uh, some games can be really destructive. But we're going to get into that in more detail soon. Um, by his definition, games are a predictable pattern of transactions between people that are both seeking gratification in some way from the game. And games are played mostly unconsciously. Uh, They're played to a set of rules that are also accepted uh, unconsciously, but both of you kind of know the rules of the game underneath the surface, and the gratification that either one of you is getting out of this game is also mostly unconscious. Um, the reason for that is because our role in the game is actually run by our individual programming, not by our kind of like conscious awareness. And usually the gratification that we're seeking within that game is just a confirmation of the programming. So if that programming is self-destructive, your gratification in the game will also be self-destructive. Uh, it's like our ego's way of saying like, ah, oh, this is who you are and you're always going to be that way. And this is not to say that we can't change. In fact, the entire idea of transactional analysis um, and the more modern uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT and uh, also mindfulness practice are all based in the idea that you can change this program. You can change your uh, social and instinctual habits, not instinctual, I suppose, social habits that have developed out of this kind of uh, individual programming. So within our personality, um, inside this programming, uh, transactional analysis claims that we have got three predictable patterns of being in the world, and they call these ego states. They are your child, your parent, and your adult. Each one of these ego states are completely different for everyone, but they are modeled on our experience of, of others and ourselves as children. So the child ego state is how you reacted in situations when you were a kid, um, the parent ego state is how you observed your parents or your authority figures reacting in certain states. And the adult ego state is the objective third party, rational, here and now present observer. So the aim of transactional analysis is to try and get the, yourself into the adult state as much as possible, which is like, again, like the modern equivalent of mindfulness where you become kind of the objective third party observing your behavior and patterns. And when a behavioral pattern starts to emerge, you kind of stop and don't let the programming take over and you deal with the situation rationally and objectively. Um, so now this is not to say that ego states themselves are actually bad, though. They all have their place in keeping us happy and social uh, and productive, but it's when they're antisocial or self-destructive uh, that we need to address them. So, um, the, like, for example, there's a good side and bad side to both of these. The child state, child ego state, is where a lot of creativity comes from, fun, flirtation, playfulness. That all comes from that state. But then so does your uh, victimhood, blaming others, lack of responsibility for your life, hopelessness or sulkiness. That all comes from the um, child. Then you have your parent, which can be... Uh, nurturing, caring, loving, organized, and then on the other side of it, it can be really critical and overbearing, judgmental. So they're definitely not wrong. It's just wrong when they're applied in situations that they don't no longer serve a purpose. So if you think about it medically, like when you cut yourself, a doctor will give you stitches, and then once the wound is healed, you go back to the doctor or you cut them out. You don't need the stitches anymore, so you get rid of them. But um, 
the problematic personality trait, like sulking when you don't get your way, is similar to like having a set of stitches that you just leave there. Even after the wound's healed, it just still like they're still there hanging out of your skin. Um, it did solve your problem once, but it's not going to solve your problem in the future. So uh, with the conglomeration of uh, these certain personality traits in your experiences, what ends up happening is you develop what they call certain life positions. And these are ways of viewing yourself and others in the world. They outlined four specific life positions that a person could be acting from. They are, I'm okay and you're okay. This life position is like, it's all good. I'm a whole person. You're a whole person. You're doing your thing. I'm doing mine and we're going to be okay. This is probably the most psychologically healthy position you can be in. And the aim of of everybody going through therapy is to get to this kind of position where you're like, I'm all right, I'm doing okay, and you're doing okay, we're fine. And when you think about this, this is probably that um, concept that the phrase that I always hate, but it makes sense is this idea like you got to love yourself before you love anyone else. And the essential idea is that you need to be okay in your own position the way you are so that and assume that everybody else is okay in the position the way that they are so that you can kind of mutually get on with your own life without having to project your own subconscious demons onto the other person. Um, Second life position is I'm okay, but you're not okay. And that's your kind of like typical narcissistic style characters where it's like no matter what anyone else does, they're shit, they're stupid, they're idiots, but I'm right and I got my shit together. Uh, really judgmental, critical. This is like a really overbearing parent state type of person. Then you've got the opposite of that, the inverse, which is I'm not okay, but you are okay. And this is that typical uh, victim, um, weak, helpless type of person that really struggles because everybody else appears to be doing better than they are and they can't do anything right because they're a piece of shit. And then the last life position is the worst of all of them, and that is I'm not okay and you're not okay. And this is where you get sociopaths, really antisocial and destructive behaviors because life is meaningless, people are meaningless, I'm um, a piece of shit and everyone else is a piece of shit. The world needs to burn. So this is a really psychologically damaging state to be in and um, a really hopeless state of existence. So these positions become developed because of our experiences in life, but also they're modeled by um, how, how we have internally learned to accept who we are and what we think we are about ourselves. Uh, what that turns into, according to transactional analysis, is this story that we tell ourselves about who we are and what we're going to be when we grow up and how we're going to behave in the future. This is what they call the life script. And this is like your unconscious patterns and your beliefs about the world and the beliefs about where you sit in the world will actually drive all of your behavior going forward. And theoretically, you could almost predict how you're going to react in any situation based on what your life position is and how your individual programming is telling you about yourself. Um, And the way that you develop this life script is, uh, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, the concept of stroke filters, which are... I don't believe you when you tell me that I'm pretty because I've never been told I'm pretty in my whole life. So I'm going to discount that. Uh, Maybe I've been told I'm pretty my whole life, but I've been told I'm stupid. So when anyone tells me I'm smart, I immediately discount that because I don't believe it. It's not, I, uh, it doesn't fit with my model of who I am. Personality traits that tend to be reinforced by others or personality traits 
uh, traits are then also reinforced by our own behavior. So it's a give and take. It's like, I expect that I'll do this in this situation and I expect this response. When I get that response back, uh, even if it's a negative response, I go, yep, of course. I knew that was going to happen because I'm a piece of shit, that kind of thing. Um, so it, this thing is pretty interesting because the point of your individual programming and the life script and your attachment to these positions, even if they make you feel bad. So if you're even in the shitty life position that says I'm not okay and you're not okay, uh, the reason why it's so hard to change it is because that is your entire conception of reality. So when something challenges that, like somebody does something nice for you and you don't expect it, your brain and your ego really work hard to discount that fact because it doesn't match with your version of reality. If your version of reality is that everyone's a piece of shit and that someone does something nice to you, you're going to go, oh, well, they only did that because they want something from me or whatever. So it makes it really hard for you to objectively view the behavior that's coming at you from other people. So you have this really, really rigid set of beliefs about who you are. And it's important. It was important during the stages of your development to create these belief systems. So they're not wrong. It's just that they're wrong when they start to contribute to your life in a negative way. So as tempting as it can be to blame the patriarchy or the government or our parents or simply the fact that we have to go to work, um, none of these things are actually to blame for the state of our current mental health. The truth is that um, I personally am the least common denominator in all of these situations. Of course, my biology is going to have an impact on this. My genetics, my family history, all of that stuff is going to have an impact on the way I deal with the world around me. But for the most part, I am the one who is experiencing all of the other types of programming. So I can be mad about social programming and it's annoying that I have to, I fucking hate that I have to go to a party and do small talk because it doesn't make any sense to me. But at the same time, these are integral steps into uh, figuring out how to be a normal socialized human being. And really, it only takes uh, like one or two minutes of uh, dumb small talk before one of you starts to launch into a little bit of uh, game playing in order to really reinforce that social programming or start to show off your <laughs> selfie self that's in the inside there. Um, and according to TA, the majority of all social activity is actually in playing games, and which, uh, which means that your individual programming then is in charge of all of these situations. So if that programming makes you feel shitty or frustrated or happy or lonely or tired or horny or whatever it is, that's how you're living your life. In the same way that we get mad that we have to go to work, but we spend fucking eight hours to 10 hours of our day at work every day, and then we get mad that that's what we have to do, it's like the majority of your life is spent inside this individual programming. So you might as well try and like the programming you've got, right? So how do we start to see and identify what our programming is? Uh, obviously, self-reflection um, is the most important thing, and these are kind of some structured ways of looking at your own behavior, and that is to analyze the games that you play because the games that you play are going to be very indicative of the kind of internal programming that you've got, the kind of games that you're drawn to, and uh, seeing what the game what the actual play of the game is like and what the actual usually underlying aims are, you might be able to identify some of the motivations for what you're doing. Um, and if you can deal with that underlying motivation, you may be able to pull yourself out of the game if it's not contributing to your life in a beneficial way. 
So in order to explain what games are, I'm just going to give you some examples of games. He names them uh, in silly ways, very like accessible human ways, because the this game is called If It Weren't For You. And the reason it's got that title is because just by me saying that name, you can kind of get an idea in your head of like, oh, I, I have a feeling I understand what this game is like. And he didn't want to give them psychological names that only the therapist would understand because it would put too much of a division between the patient and the therapist. And it would end up in one of those situations where the patient is always coming to the therapist for advice rather than being able to figure it out on their own. By giving these games names that are socially understood and easily recognizable, then people could start to identify the games and come up with their own games that they notice that they're playing. Um, these are pretty predictable patterns, the ones that they've, they've outlined, but it doesn't mean that there is no nuance within the game. Like, and games are constantly changing as our culture changes, and obviously across cultures they're going to be very different. So this game is called If It Weren't For You. Um, the players in this example, I'll use a stereotypical example of like a wife and a husband and uh the wife is playing the game if it weren't for you and she's saying if it weren't for you I would have been a famous ballet dancer and the husband's going oh yes but you are a lovely wonderful wife and you've always been there for me and she goes yes I am but if it weren't for you I could have been famous whatever so um the the key thing to note really is that both of them are playing this game. It's not just her. She's playing the game, but he's also playing into it. So it requires both of them, their interaction in order for this game to proceed. Uh, if he didn't have a stake in this game and he wasn't going to play, she would say, if it weren't for you, I would have been a ballet dancer. And he would go, go to ballet class if you want to. There's no reason for you to stay here. Go. And then she'd be like, ah, oh, oh, fuck, nah. Because really the truth of the reason why she's playing this game is that she wants to avoid her fear of failure. She needs somebody else to blame because the truth is if she wanted to be a ballet dancer, she would have been a ballet dancer. But she's afraid of trying and failing or trying something new because the world's scary. So she is going to find a husband that's going to play this domineering role in her life so that she doesn't have to face her own fears. So um, the root of this game is fear on both sides. She's afraid of facing uh, failure and new challenges, and he is afraid of being alone. He uh, wants her to be home at the end of the night waiting for him, and he's afraid of the world. So the advantages for her is that she doesn't have to face the fear of failure, and the advantages for him is that he is needed and he's secure and he's always got somebody there at home for him. Um, I, and, and if you are to extrapolate this to an overall worldview, the people that typically are playing this game tend to feel that the world is a dangerous place. That's their kind of life position. This is a part of their life script, that their view on the uh, external reality is that the world is a dangerous place, and so we participate in this game to protect ourselves from the dangers of the world. Um, another example of a game is called Why Don't You? Yes, But... Um, and this game is pretty funny. He says that uh, it's a good game to play in social environments where you don't have a lot to say to each other because <laughs> it's a really good one that churns up a lot of time. So if you're like at the work Christmas party and you're not quite drunk enough to like make a bad decision, you 
could pass the time by playing this game. And essentially what it is, is that some, one of them, one person in the group will present a problem and then all the other people in the group will start presenting solutions to the problem. And the person who presented the problem will constantly say, yeah, but, yeah, but, uh, to all their solutions. So, um, the players would be a group of people. The core of this game is, um, insecurity and seeking reassurance. So the advantages of the person who proposes the game, like, uh, I just can never get my hair to grow. And then the person goes, oh, have you tried creatine? And yes, but uh, it broke all my hair off. Oh, have you ever tried eating better? Yeah, of course I have tried, but I just don't have enough money. Oh, have you tried seeing this hair person? Yeah, but so you're just constantly discounting every solution that anyone's brought to you. Um, the reason why this is quite obviously a game is that if somebody had proposed a problem and then somebody proposed a solution and that person went, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Thanks for that. The game ends like that. It, it's over. So the goal was to actually get some advice. But in this particular instance, the goal is not to get advice. The goal is to reassure the person that they are uh, on the same par as everybody else and they're not going to surrender. So this person is trying to prove that nobody else is capable of solving their problems and that they will never back down. Now, the players in this game, the people that are um, offering solutions, they have an easy exit too. If they weren't playing the game and didn't have this existential need inside them to be needed they wouldn't be playing the game. They, the person would propose a solution or the person would propose a um, problem. The person says a solution and then the person immediately rejects the solution. And then that second person would just go, ah, well, it sounds like a tough problem. And then the game's over. Nobody's playing a game anymore. And then you have to like, you know, have a couple more shots to <laughs> structure your time. Um, but so usually the people that are trying to help in this game have a deep core need to be needed. And they're uh, typically trying to play another game called, oh, I'm just trying to help you. And they become a victim when somebody doesn't take their suggestion. So uh, both of these have psychological advantages. Um, at the existential position of this, which is the people that tend to play this game, uh, believe that the everybody in the world wants to dominate them and they are never going to surrender. So they have control issues, typically. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, remember. Keep in mind, these are also ways of just structuring your time. It's just that if you notice that you're struggling in certain situations and you're finding yourself doing these shitty repetitive behavior patterns that you're not happy with, then you can have a look at why you're playing the games that you're playing. Um, he, he did say that it's pretty interesting that people tend to hang out with other people that like playing the same games as each other because it helps you re reinforce your position in the world, your individual programming, positive or negative. And when you start to change your personality traits uh, through this kind of introspective work, you will start to notice that you change games that you're playing. And that means that you're going to usually start changing the people that you hang around because they're not contributing to your ego the way that they used to or whatever. Um, so it's, it can be hard because you, you might be leaving behind somebody that was previously fulfilling a role in your life that is no longer necessary. Uh, another game, uh, the last one that I'll go through is a game called Why Does This Always Happen to Me? And this is your typical victim state, hopeless, powerless state. Um, 
so like an example would be um, somebody at work, uh, he, this guy just keeps fucking up and then they eventually just fire him. And then he goes, oh, this always happens to me. Nobody understands me. This is always my situation. Um, and the root of this is uh, he has a deep inner sense of worthlessness. Um, his advantage in playing this game is that he can always blame somebody else or something else for his own insecurity, that it's never his fault, it's the world's fault. Um, and it's also an excuse to have rage. So if he can say that the world did this to him, this always happens to me because that's just the world for you, he has an excuse to be angry. And um, the existential position, so the overall worldview of a person that plays this game is that uh, the world's out to get me because I'm a piece of shit. So if that person uh, is able to improve their own sense of self-worth they and through obviously not playing the game, it's not why does this always happen to me, it's fuck this thing happened and how do I make uh, adjustments to stop it from happening again. The reason why we continually play this game, like getting to the point where you get fired all the time is because you sort of at your core believe that you should be fired, you know, like that you don't deserve to be in the position you're in or whatever. So the key to these games, especially the negative ones, is that there is an ulterior motive. On the surface, it's like two rational, normal adults talking to each other, but underlying it, there is uh, a certain ego state that's being fed by one of the positions in this game. Um, and it's usually that they're uh, like, it's a child talking to a child. An example of this in a fun way, in a nice way is like, uh, when you are maybe just starting to date someone and you go over to their house and you show up and they go, why don't I show you around? And you're like, yes, I'd love to see your house. <laughs> and what you're actually, what's happened, that sounds like two adults talking to each other, but what's actually happening is you're like, it's your two children, your two child states talking to each other going, do you want to come and see my bedroom? And you're going, uh, yeah, I'd love to get naked. So they're not all bad necessarily. Um, and the way to exit the game, uh, as I just said, is to notice the role that you're playing and then stop contributing to it. So um, if it, like, like the, with the ballerina spouse, it's like, yeah, go, go be a ballerina. If you want to, you should. And then that person can go out and experience their own failure and then come back and have a lovely moment where they go, oh, fuck, the reason I wasn't a ballerina this whole time is because I'm fucking scared. I went into that class and I was an idiot. And how embarrassing for me. Now I'm home and I feel much more comfortable being at home. And then the husband can laugh and be like, damn, well, good, good job. At least you tried. Or maybe she becomes a ballerina and falls in love with a male ballerina and she leaves her husband and then he has to deal with the fact that, fuck, yeah, it's scary to be alone, but he'll find another girl that can blame him for all her life's problems in the future. <laughs> um, but the beauty of this thing is uh, if you can, with a bit of humor, uh, and he really kind of stresses that, that that's really important to like have a laugh at yourself. It's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that you're playing these games. And that beautiful moment when like you both realize that you're caught up in a game and you can laugh at each other and be like, fuck, what are we doing here? That's like the, that's kind of one of the ultimate like 
I, at least in my experience, it's like the best moments of intimacy that I ever have. It's like, in, and I just mean even with my friends, like when we are getting a bit caught up in something shitty or I get caught up in my own state of being and then somebody calls me on it and it hurts for a second, I'll get fucking defensive. And then these like walls melt down and you laugh at each other and you go, fuck, I was being such a dick just then. <laughs> it's nice. And, it, and that's what brings you closer to other people. So that's how you end up with like that really nice, authentic human connection and real intimacy. So how do we get there, though? If the goal of uh, all human social interactions is to get recognition that we exist, then I imagine it's probably helpful to uh, consider if there are other ways that are independent of games and social interactions that we can get confirmation that we exist. Um, in the same way, like when you're not starving, you have the capacity to nourish yourself with a variety of options that are going to satisfy you most. But when you're starving, you literally have to just eat whatever the fuck is in front of you, um, just to keep yourself alive. So when we do counterintuitive or self-destructive things without thinking, it's probably coming out of a place of like existential starvation. And they think that the opposite of that is what he calls autonomy. Um, and autonomy, if you've heard that term before, it, it basically just means freedom, but, um, or independence, like complete soul independence on your own. Um, and the way that he describes it in the book is, uh, defines it, sorry, is awareness of the immediate present moment, uh, spontaneity, which is like going with the flow, not getting caught up in a pattern and intimacy, which is the ability to be vulnerable and open. So the combination of those three things makes you autonomous. Having uh, immediate awareness of the immediate present, being able to be spontaneous, and being intimate, which is vulnerable and open. Uh, so how do we get that? Um, just having an awareness of all the silly shit that we do and why we do it can help us stop that programming in action. That's the idea. This is the idea behind all mindfulness meditation, mindfulness practice, cognitive behavioral therapy. The idea is take a little second, Try not to react out of habit and try and react from the objective immediate present. Um, especially if we don't like the way that we react in certain situations, it is likely that we've got some unconscious belief about ourselves that's being fed by playing that character. So if you continually find yourself getting fired from jobs, it's probably worth trying to consider why you feel like you don't deserve these jobs. Why are you con continually sabotaging yourself. Uh, it's probably not the external situation. It, it, you could get fired and it's not your fault because somebody else has done something um, or I don't, whatever. But if it's a pattern that's happening in your life, then it, yeah, it's definitely something to consider. Um, trying not to get mad at ourselves, obviously, for all the dumb shit we do um, and rather trying to understand what felt bad about it at the time. So like when, when something shitty happens, like this happened to me recently, I have this really core belief that I am not worthy of like a particular person's affection or attention. It's a model that I developed as a little kid. My parents were pretty independent people and very critical, but of everything. It's not just of me, just of everything in general. And so I like have this core belief that I need to be interesting all the time in order to gain the affection of somebody around me. And if the person isn't particularly interested in me, I have to like work harder to get their attention because it proves my worth as a human or something. And so I find this when I meet various people along my path of life that 
I have like put into this model, like, oh, they're a person I need to um, impress, then I find myself slipping into this track of like constantly trying to be interesting for them all the time. And if they don't seem to be particularly interested in me, I start to wear myself down and remind, and I get in this state of being like, fuck, you are a piece of shit. You're, you're so useless. No wonder nobody likes you. And it's ridiculous. Like it's totally self-destructive. And, um, luckily now, like, uh, just from reading a lot about this stuff and also having discussions with good people that care about me, it's like, it's really nice to be able to start to notice those behavior patterns. And I can have a bit of a laugh about it and be like, oh, it's okay. You did that dumb thing. You're not an idiot. Just keep trying again. Try again tomorrow and try not to be that person. So, um, and lastly, obviously with the spontaneity thing is that if we can accept that change is inevitable, because it is, of course, then the more relaxed we can be when the change occurs. Um, if we're relaxed, then we can see other options around it. So like w- one thing would be if you're looking for a very specific outcome in something and all of your life is riding on this specific outcome, but you don't get it, instead of um, like becoming a victim to not getting the outcome or blaming other people or blaming the situation, if you have a look at what that outcome, what purpose was that outcome serving for you, you can kind of see where that need comes from. Like, uh, oh, this outcome, I needed that person to love me because I needed to validate myself. Then you could, you might be able to be like, oh wait, I might be able to validate myself by um, making a cool video or being happy with a podcast I produce or whatever. So like there are other options of validating your own existence rather than requiring the approval of somebody else, if that makes sense. Um, so again, obviously I'm not a psychologist or anything like it. And as uh, just established in that example, <laughs> I don't know how to deal with my own programming very well. But um, I have definitely been finding that the more I read about it, the funnier my behavior gets. And I am taking myself and other people less seriously. And I think that's helpful. Um, and I am also finding that it's helpful in me relating to other people on a more human level without being so critical of myself or them. So, Jesus, that's an hour, and I need to go. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Um, And I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of this shit. Uh, It's always interesting to me to see how these podcasts work out for you. So by all means, send me a message, whatever. If you like the content of this podcast or any of the other shit I do, please feel free to like my page, share it around to other people. Um, You can become a patron if you want to at patreon.com or... Yeah. Tell your friends about the podcast. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And I will, oh, I've got very exciting guests for you next week. Um, the Gold Coast Laughs Festival is on this week, this entire week. And uh, I'll be talking to Dusty Rich, who's one of the comedians that's in the show. And he's fucking hilarious. He's great. He is performing on Friday night, the 22nd. Um, there's a bunch of acts up. Uh, one of my favorites of all time is Sam Campbell and he is performing on Thursday night, uh, at, these are all at the home of the arts. Uh, Damien Power is a comedian from Brisbane. That's also performing on Thursday night that I love. Um, and who else? Mel Buttles there, Anna Edmonds. There's a bunch of really great, um, local comics and, uh, oh, and Dan Rath. I don't know. He doesn't have his own. Uh, solo show, but he is going to be at, they're doing like this cool thing called late night laughs or late laughs on the Friday and Saturday night of the Gold Coast um, Laughs Festival. So if you want to hear more about that, I'll put the link on my website. It's, uh, I'll be up there a bunch this week and 
it's really exciting and very fun. So um, I don't know, that seemed like an irrelevant tangent. They're not paying me to advertise for them. I just really like it. All right. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And we'll talk to you again next week.